Hello, welcome to The Armin Show, where we talk about everything science, human behavior, creativity, and more. Thanks for joining, and make sure to subscribe. Hello, and welcome to The Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, expanding our framework. It gets cooler and cooler out here. Human behavior, learning a lot. This is episode number 407. I am joined here by two wonderful individuals, both past guests. Next to me here, maybe next to me on the video, we have Rebecca Faith Lawson, psychology background. Recently, we talked about the loneliness epidemic with Todd Cashdan, among other episodes. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. And our other guest today has been on the show before, now is returning after a lot of social media exposure and content production. Mackin Murphy in the building. Mackin, welcome to the show. Hi, Armin. How are you? I am great. This is wonderful, and it is good to have you both on to cover some material related to the category of dating, relationships, attraction, that whole field, which in some ways is the opposite, but is connected to the loneliness that some have, but also is connected to people's desires, what they're looking for, pairings between people across country, the world, whatever it might be. Now, so before I get into the material, Mac and you are, tell us about your location because you're on a far off land from where we are. I am, I am. So I'm currently in Australia. So it's uh, first thing in the morning here. Um, woken up nice and early for you both. Um, although I was still late, unfortunately, uh, for which I apologize. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in Australia. I'm at the University of Melbourne. Um, I've since graduated Oxford. I think that was... I don't think that development had uh, actually passed last time we spoke. Um, so yeah, a, lot, a lot's changed. I'm you know coming up on the end of uh, my first year here, I suppose. I've got a pre-confirmation in a month, so. That's cool. You're in Candice Blake's lab studying infidelity, inequality, mate guarding, mate switching, mate everything, mate value that category yeah, of material. Yeah, I think human mating behavior just about covers it. Um, we've really wrapped up on uh, the infidelity stuff. I mean, we're I'm still doing the write-up for our study there. And, you know, I'm looking into doing a second study on it, um, as well as kind of potentially even adding to the first one. But yeah, I, I, would, say, I would say that, that that's fair enough. Um, Nothing, definitely nothing um, official in the infidelity pipeline. Um, the topics that I'm really interested in now are, are, are slightly different and uh, more related to variation in uh, human mating preferences and effort. So, this is wonderful. And as well, with my co host here coming up to the end of psychology in study, a couple classes there. Are you liking the study of psychology? Have you enjoyed it thus far, Rebecca? Yes, I've definitely enjoyed it. I have taken a number of psychology classes, all from work psychology to social psychology and also um, like cognitive psychology as well. And so everything has given me a little piece of the psychology world in general. And it's all been very interesting and I've learned a lot. This is cool. Long live human behavior, understanding why we make the decisions that we do. I have an entertaining intro into this before we get into the material. Mac and Hat's show, Species Podcast, it is about 
animal of each animal. I was thinking, Rebecca, if you could choose one or two animals that come to mind, and then I challenge Mackin if he has a fact or such about that category of animals. I thought that would be interesting. Rebecca, please, an animal or two. Sure. The first animals that come to mind would be bears, and the second would be cats. Okay. Um, so bears, let's talk about um, let's talk about panda bears. Uh, they are similar to humans. They're an animal that doesn't have an instinctive knowledge of exactly how they have sex. Um, some of the since we're talking about human mating behavior today, I think this will be a relevant one. Um, they have some of the architecture there, but they actually need to learn how to perform it, right? Um, and so when researchers and conservationists were first trying to save the panda bear, um, you know, there was there was this confusion as to like why, you know, we've got the panda bears in captivity, the babies. Um, why isn't why isn't the second generation breeding? Like, why can't why can't we make that happen? Um, and it turned out that the only way to um, teach them was to give them a visual aid. Um, and so that consisted of them recording panda bears having sex. So essentially making panda bear sex tapes um, and then showing it to the next generation. So that way they had the knowledge um, of how to perform the act. Um, there were all sorts of crazy, you know, mishaps where the scientists were just completely bewildered. Um, I remember there was one instance where one of the males was trying to mate with a female's ear. And um, both of them seemed to have no idea that anything was going wrong. Um, so that, that's, that's a fact about bears. I guess um, a fact about cats. Well, a lot of people say, you know, my cat doesn't hunt, right? Like they have, a, they have an outdoor cat and it's like, oh my God, my, my cat, my cat doesn't hunt. Um, but this, this has turned out not to, um, not to necessarily be true. Um, if, if, you know, there, there are, I've heard that there are there are groups that you know put cameras on cats and um, and and it turns out that this is um, it, even even the fluffiest friendliest cat um, has a lot of hunting instincts there um, and they often act on them um, and I think I heard that uh, recently from actually Peter Singer um, who I got to see here in uh, here in Melbourne so one of the benefits um, of being in Australia. That's pretty cool. Rebecca may have some cats inside information. Cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do they That's hunt? That's cool. My cats eat. Well, my one cat, Tigger, he he would go outside a lot. He loves to go outdoors and he would bring something home, something different like every day. Yeah. And that's when I lived in one location. Like he, it's sad, but he brought home like baby rabbits sometimes. Oh, God. And, and like... Yeah, just like other things. But the thing is, is I move location and it's just too dangerous for him to go out now. And so I feel bad like that I like keep him indoors. Um, and he has like a lanai, but I'm trying to like, you know, make him happy. And sometimes I like take him on a walk with a leash. So, but I feel like, oh, I'm gonna have to like move at some point just because yep. I feel so bad that he's like indoor now. But <laughs> yeah, I love uh, cats with a lanai. That's, uh, that's a very bougie cat. Mm hmm. <laughs> That's some cool stuff. Now, jumping from this, you have content, Megan, on TikTok. Broadly going into that content, your material on there is very jump cuts, edited, block text, attention grabbing, and you have come to nearly 100,000 followers on there in a rapid time between our last talk. And now, how would you view 
your progression on there? What has, when you think of the buildup, what kind of feedback or what um, thoughts come to mind from this period of time as far um, as your growth on there? Well, it was very peculiar. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been told by people for about a year. I think that there's some kind of, in terms of the, the success, I think that it's largely selection bias, um, just in the sense that like, like I want to talk about like, you know, things that I did to facilitate that. But I think that it, it, I'd been hearing for about a year from people and it's kind of a weird thing for people to say, but, um, but people in my social circle were like, oh, you need to go on TikTok. You need to go on TikTok. Just set up a camera and like talk to the camera the way that you talk to us about like research and things like that. Um, and it'll, it'll completely pop off. And eventually I was just kind of worn down by that encouragement to be like, all right, well, I mean, sure. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Um, and then I spent a couple months, um, and you know, I'm not saying that I'm some crazy success on there, but you know, like I, I it is, I guess a hundred thousand followers is, you know, it, it, it is quite a bit for such a short time period. Um, and yeah, I think that the, most of it is just, um, is just factors that I'm not aware of, um, to be honest. Um, but I, but I would also say that, yeah, the, in terms of how I view it progressing, um, I think it was, it was partially due to, you know, speed information density, um, and, and content quality. Um, I think that people, I think that people probably find it kind of unusual to see like heavily referenced TikToks. And I think that's, that's probably part of it as well. If I had to guess is that my content's kind of strange. Um, yeah, not sure to be honest, Armin, I, w I wish I had a, if I, if I had a good idea of, you know, how it happened, it was probably a lot of luck as well. Um, yeah, if I had a good idea of how it happened, I would like make an ebook and sell it, but, um, yeah. Makes sense. To Rebecca, have you found that quick edits, jump cuts, things like that are appealing to take in? Is that the only way to do well in social media right now? What are your thoughts on quick moving content? Mm -hmm. I think that quick moving content is good because you can get like a lot of information. It kind of keeps your attention. And then on the side of the creator, it's like, okay, if people are going to, if they think what you're saying is interesting, they're going to watch it again. And you're going to get like double views because it's so quick. And it's like, oh, I, maybe I didn't capture all of it. Um, and, but I also appreciate slow, like a little bit slower than the typical quick moving that I do see just because as a viewer, I like to really get the information the first time I watch it. But like I'm saying, like for the creator, it's strategic to make it quick. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Um, I, I also prefer slower content, actually. Like I, I very rarely use TikTok. I never use it to get information. Um, I, 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 like as a consumer, I don't really, I don't really enjoy TikTok that much um, compared to my enjoyment of like a podcast, um, which is the ultimate slow moving. Um, I can't remember who said it, but someone pointed out how weird it was. Um, I actually heard this on a podcast, but I think it might've been Sam Harris, but I, I don't want to, I, I don't know who it was, but someone pointed out that the internet has bifurcated into really, really long content and really, really short content and all the in-between stuff and, uh, all the in-between stuff seems to have been hollowed out. Right. That's true. I've thought about that too. 
real fast moving. I can barely keep up attention deficit. And then like three hour long uh, episodes that, that people stuff, had. Yeah. yeah. Or Lex Friedman, things like that. Yeah. Right. True. The big spaces between them. Now, getting into it a bit. Mate value, attraction, infidelity. Macking. Straight from content related to material you have discussed. And then we'll do some follow-ups from each of us on that. What qualities in a person tend to lead to infidelity? And how connected is mate value to chance of infidelity? Tell me about the infidelity. Tell us about the infidelity space. Yeah, okay. So qualities that lead to infidelity. I, I, I wouldn't say that what we have is a bunch of correlational studies, right? So we have studies where we know that certain traits correlate with a person's probability of committing infidelity. That's not to say it's causal, right? So I'll give you an example where, where it probably isn't causal. One thing that we see is that people who are sociosexually unrestricted, right? Um, or let's say this, people who have a high number of past partners have a higher probability of committing infidelity, right? That's, that's men and women. If you're talking to two guys, right? If you're a girl listening and you're talking to two guys and one of them has slept with 100 people and one of them has slept with five, odds are, just in terms of odds of infidelity, um, the one who slept with 100 people um, is just more likely to cheat, right? But that's not a causal relationship, most likely. I mean, some people might think it is. It could be, right? It, like the one causal route would be that it's hard to settle down with one person after you've experienced so many. That's what that's one causal hypothesis. But I would say that it's more likely that both traits um, reflect a similar underlying variable, right? That predicts both. So for example, there might be, you know, if you have a very high propensity for risk taking, right? If you're very sexually narcissistic, right? These are things that could could lead to both feasibly lead to both infidelity and, you know, a quote unquote high body count. So that would be one place where people get potentially confused. Um, another correlational trait, um, I mentioned sexual narcissism. So, you know, there's some studies showing that narcissism overall um, seems to predict infidelity. Um, but, you know, there has been some research trying to break down like, OK, well, what to, why are we getting mixed results here? Like, why does it sometimes not show a correlation? And it, and it seems to be possible. There, there, there are certainly some researchers who think that it's really about sexual narcissism. Um, so, so kind of a subset of that. Another thing would be family history of infidelity. Again, I, I, how causal this is, is, is up for debate and kind of the path of causation. Um, is, you know, the degrees to which it's environment versus genetics um, is debatable, right? I, I would say that there's definitely a large genetic component. Um, it would be kind of peculiar if there wasn't, given that genes, you know, code for the protein and regulatory molecules that build your brain. Um, but, you know, if you've got a long family history of, um, you know, men cheating on their wives or women cheating on their husbands, then the odds that you will do the same are higher, all else being equal. Other traits that correlate with infidelity. Um, yeah, I mean, th those are a few. How about that? We'll, we'll start there and uh, we can talk about anything. Valid point there. Now, as Mackin describes that, do any of those, Rebecca, come to mind as elements that have been part of how people have described where infidelity has taken place? Has the word narcissism come up? Does any of that mm -hmm. connect directly with examples you have seen? I'm sure all those things are like based off research and I'm sure like valid. What comes to my mind though is like maybe stories I've heard, which would be 
maybe there's a person being neglected in a relationship and because of that neglect, like say there were a couple who were married and one was often traveling and working all the time and the other maybe was ignored and wanted more of a connection, but they weren't around, then I've seen or like I've heard about infidelity there or maybe like age gap and then one person gets older and the other person, like there's too big of an age gap, maybe like 20, 30 years. And the other person's like, oh, this person isn't like the same as me and in like energy and stuff. And then there's more infidelity there too. But those are like the two things I've heard about that come to my mind. Yeah. And uh, the age gap one, I've, I've heard some anecdotal support for um, the relationship dissatisfaction and distance one. Um, those those are definitely true as well. Um, I mean, you know, whether you commit infidelity is going to be a function of opportunity and motivation. Right. And if it will opportunity, motivation and then costs. Right. How high are the costs of getting caught, for example? And if relationship satisfaction is very low, well, then the costs of getting caught are quite low as well, um, because you're risking losing the relationship. And so that variable is just a, a smaller part of the equation, right? That mitigating variable that that decreases your risk of committing infidelity. It's um, yeah, it, it's smaller. Um, and then, you know, your motivation might be higher, especially I mean, some people cheat to mate switch. Um, I wouldn't say that that's the primary reason people mate switch some is that people have affairs. Um, some researchers do believe that, um, at least for women. But yeah, that, that, that's another probability. And then opportunity, right? If someone's al always traveling, always out of the house, always working, um, yeah, you're much less likely to get caught. So those, those, are, those are a few things that, that, uh, that, that come to mind there that would also be, I mean, the, the connection between infidelity and relationship to satisfaction, that's a, that's a very well-supported um, finding. How often does infidelity come up in uh, responses to your content and is it more from one one gender or the other or what do you notice about who's bringing it up the most any features of those individuals Who, who's bringing up infidelity the most in response to my content yeah um well usually i'm the one bringing it up because <laughs> my content's often about infidelity but in terms of like who's responding to, i mean my following is i think it's just a function of TikTok's demographics i mean i don't i don't have any insight there um, but I, I don't think my sample would be good because my following is almost all women. So it's, it wouldn't, yeah, like it, like, it, like it's going to be like, I would say that, that it's mostly women. Like if you go to my comments, it's mostly women. And if you go to my following, that would reflect the same, but you wouldn't be able to conclude like, oh, there's like a gendered effect here. Um, yeah, I wish, I wish I had a representative sample for you, Armin. I don't. That's all right. It's mostly uh, I've got a very, very strong sample of um, American women ages 18 to 24. That's that's my strongest, my strongest group um, who are living in cities. Yeah. I think that I think that's I've over half that. my audience, but I'll have to check. It's good to know. It's good to know the demographics you're most speaking to and what they're saying. That's cool. Yeah. Now, before I switch to attractive qualities for long term pairing, any further thoughts on infidelity there, Rebecca, that come to mind or to the next one? Hmm. None that come to my mind at the moment now. Oh, oh, oh. Thanks. Same on here. Yes. Now, qualities, attractive qualities for long-term pairing. 
What is it that pulls people to each other for a long-term pairing? Mackin, what has been found? Can can someone work on these things also? Are these things that are set in stone already or workable? Yeah, well, I, I was just speaking to um, Alexander from Date Psychology about this actually on my podcast. Um, the, I mean, there are a lot of things that people say they want in long-term partners, right? They're, 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 I could talk about those traits. Um, so if you do, and, and I think that they... I think that it's true that they do want these things. It's just maybe less of a factor or maybe less of a measurable factor. Maybe that's that's the only problem. Um, so, so people say that they want someone who's generally, they'll want someone who's honest, um, who's faithful, who's loyal, um, who's kind, right? These are traits that come up a lot when you do a survey and say, what do you want in a long-term partner? But when you look at you know selective behavior, um, physical attractiveness is really very important. Um, physical, like it's actually, I mean, people talk about examples of kind of looks for status trades, um, but, you know, looking at your partner to gauge your own physical attractiveness, it's at, uh, I mean, interpartner correlations of attractiveness are not quite as high, but close to as high as in some studies, um, self ratings of attractiveness correlated with other ratings of attractiveness. So what this means is that there is, you know, an approaching similarity between in inaccuracy between judging your own attractiveness by looking in the mirror and judging your own attractiveness by assuming it's the same as your partner. Right. Um, now there are cases obviously of mismatches. I mean, there are plenty, um, especially with, you know, um, money and status coming into the mix, money, status, and power and things like that. Um, but for the most part, people mate relatively assortively. And so partners correlate pretty highly on physical attractiveness. And also people prioritize physical attractiveness quite highly when looking for a long-term mate. And for men, it's very high on the list. Um, it's interesting though, because there's some research that's tried to tease apart the sex difference. Um, I think that it's a very well-supported finding across multiple methodologies that men care more about looks than women, even though both sexes care much more than they would say in most cases. Um, but there has been some research that's tried to you know, do reviews of these behavioral studies and compare them to these self-report studies. And my understanding is that the typical result is that looks end up mattering in behavior much more than in conversation, right? And this makes sense from a social desirability perspective. Like if I were to ask you, what are you looking for in a long-term mate? It would be very awkward and you know, socially flagrant if you were like, oh, I just want to date someone who's super good looking, right? That wouldn't come across very well socially. But in practice, that's what a lot of people do, um, is that looks come first. And part of this is going to just be the, the fact that looks can be assessed immediately while everything else takes a while. Um, that's part of the bias is just that it's easiest to filter by one trait, even if it's not the most important, if it's the first one that you see. Um, so th those are, those are a few things, right? Like, even if, you, even if you really do care about honesty, the behavioral studies are one thing, but even if you do care more about honesty than looks, right? In practice, you can't see honesty. Like it takes forever to figure that out. Um, and so when you're looking for a partner, it just makes sense to start by being like, okay, well, who am I attracted to? And then from that group, who's honest? Because one of them is quick to see, one of them is slow to see. Um, but.
But nevertheless, we see the correlation. Yeah. All right. Rebecca, thoughts on that description of those two compared with each other? I think those all sound about correct. I think people do generally definitely seek somebody who is attractive in their eyes because people like to be around people who are similar to them. First off, it's even if it's not interest, it's like, okay, like, well, I have a commonality with these people because they somehow look like me. Maybe they're the same ethnicity or the same whatever it is. And I think exactly what Mackin was saying, you go for something that is you can you can almost like rate in the beginning um, unless because other qualities take more time. So. Yeah, some of those take weeks, months. You can't see it directly. It doesn't showcase on a person's form, their honesty level. There's no like numerical number that goes with them of their honesty as they're walking around. So, yeah, we go with our initial first and then from there. That makes sense. And then. Do these qualities speak to me? Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with what is being said here. It's the only it's it's been, I think, the default way for a long time. And then you look at extensive qualities for a further time frame. That's cool. All right. So now complete segue as I tend to do, which is one of my skills. Dating shows. There are online dating shows. There are many of them. There are various programs that are well-known by people and then some that are known by people who watch YouTube and that category and whatnot. Mackin, from what you know of the dating programs that are online, before I would mention any of them, what are they missing or what are they doing a good job of showcasing if you've seen some of them where they have a lot of people and they're talking about dating and relationships right now? Depends on the, depends on the show. Who, who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of the ones like uh, The Miami Show, Fresh and Fit, Rolo, Tomasi, The Santa Barbara Show, which is similar to The Miami Show, and a few of the ones where they bring on eight, ten people, five people, six people. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, kind of uh, some of those would align. I, I actually don't know, but I know the the show in Santa Barbara. I think it's called like Whatever Podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if they align to red pill things. I mean, I, I, to be truth be told, like, most of my knowledge of these shows comes from clips that I've seen. Um, like I wouldn't be someone who would sit down and watch like an entire, it's just too, I mean, frankly, it's too sexist. Like it's not, it's just not like, it's just not tolerable. Like it doesn't feel fun or it's not a good use of my time. Um, from the clips that I've seen, um, that, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that they get everything wrong um, empirically, but when they weigh in on factual matters, they are often either incorrect um, or they're cherry picking facts in such a way that I don't think anyone who's familiar with the literature would agree that they're that they're summarizing it in a, you know, an even handed and and neutral way. Um, so for one example of this um, that's pretty clear is they um, there's there's a huge body of research showing that women in most cultures most of the times are most attractive in their early twenties. Um, there are some there are some counterexamples, right? There are some there are some groups where it seems that um, women's attractiveness peaks slightly later um, or slightly earlier. 
Um, but in terms of just mate value, it, it does seem to be that um, that most men report themselves being most attracted to women in their early 20s. And they take that fact and use it as a bludgeon to say like, oh, you know, um, if, if a woman, it, you know, wastes those years, then she's never going to find anybody, da, 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 da. That is complete nonsense, right? That See, that jump actually doesn't, I understand how they make it, but they're making it just because they want to, you know, use a weapon against women. If you actually look at the broader suite of findings in kind of the aging and dating literature, you see that women in their 30s are much less likely to be single than women in their 20s, right? So that's one clue that maybe maybe there is no doom on the horizon. And, and this is a very significant difference. Um, on top of that, women on average get married. I mean, I mean, it depends on the study, depends what we're looking at, but you know, median made at, made age at marriage um, is gonna be around 29. Um, the other thing is that um, women tend to pair up with men who are only slightly older than themselves. So this idea that like all men are competing for one group of women, that's, that's just not accurate either. Um, most men and most women are dating vaguely in their age cohort. Now, this, this changes as men get much older, right? So men in their 60s might actually be looking for women in their 40s and 50s. Um, but that, that, that's kind of neither here nor there when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about the, the core reproductive years of humans. Um, what we see is that small age gaps are, are frankly the norm. Um, so this whole story that they've built around that one fact, that, that's just a good example of like, they know one fact, and so they build this whole story around it and, you know, the myth of the wall, like women will hit the wall and then they'll have no reproductive value around, you know, 25 to 30 or whatever. And it's like, that's just not true. Um, women have more, I would say that women generally have more, you know, negotiating power on the mating market, even into their thirties um, compared to the average man, um, especially if we're going off of, um, especially if we're going off who's more likely to be single um, and, you know, who's more likely to be able to be selective. Um, yeah, we're not, we're just not seeing the problems that they say or that they warn women about. Um, truthfully, I think that they might know that, right? They might know that the wall isn't really a thing, um, but they want, but these are men who are aggressively interested in younger women and so they might want to kind of suppress younger women's um, self-esteem or suppress their perception that they actually do have time. Um, I mean, the average woman meets the man she's going to marry around 25-ish, I believe, in the West. Um, so that's not, that's just not early 20s. Um, uh, yeah, so, and that's that's average meet. So still, it's, it's half on either side. There's gonna be a lot older, a lot younger. Um, so there's huge variation and uh, that would be one example. But I could talk about so many examples. I mean, there's, there's so many things that they've said that are, um, that are inaccurate. That's some informative material about the age ranges and such thoughts that come to mind on that, Rebecca, as far as the pairing there. Mm -hmm. Well, I just like the fact that Mackin is debunking myths. And I think I'm most want him to like make a podcast just like debunking all these things that maybe other podcasters are putting out into the world because I'm sure people are listening to them, these guys, whoever they are. And yeah, like maybe like taking those as truths. And that's really, 
I feel like that's like just such a just an awful thing to do is trying to like suppress these women or making make them feel like they have to like make all these decisions because they don't have time on their hands and like Macken is saying it's like especially because especially because we're living longer than maybe we as a human species than we used to people are getting married a little bit later generally speaking and so if so people are going to be they'll wait longer and people will consider marriage in their 20s and 30s other than just early 20s so yeah i i guess another thing to just jump off on this a lot of people think that i'm just this incredibly biased anti-red pill ideologue but that is really an advertisement that they're not listening to what i'm saying i mean i'm i'm a very even-handed critic um on this point like i'm i i've said in this conversation that physical attractiveness matters much more than people think that's that's not exactly a a blue pill idea right um i've said that physical attractiveness um is mostly not socially constructed like we see huge interculture agreement as to which faces are attractive and which faces are unattractive. It does seem that there's a biological underpinning to um, what what determines attractiveness. There is a large socially constructed, culturally constructed component, um, but, but that also isn't exactly, you know, this, this blue pill idea. Um, I've said that body count predicts infidelity, right? That that's a well-supported, that's just a, that's just a well-supported finding. Um, and I have no disagreement with it. Um, I've also said that women's physical attractiveness, generally most men, most of the time, um, think that women are most attractive in their early 20s, right? So so I say all these things that are not, they're not anti-red pill and they're not pro-red pill either. It's just that they're supported by facts. The only places where I disagree with these podcasts is where I honestly believe that they are wrong because of my reading of the literature. And that that's very different from being, you know, like an ideological, like anti, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not pro or anti, I mean, I, I'm not saying that I, I mean, I do think that a lot of those guys are sexist, but my position, my position isn't and never has been that I'm anti everything any one group says about facts. I'm just pro scientific consensus, whatever is, you know, the mainstream science on something. That's what I'm, that's what I'm passing on. So. That, that's just one that's just one difficulty is that you know like they're, they're, these guys are wrong about so many things that I do spend a lot of time making videos just critiquing them um, and then the pushback is that I'm biased and it's like well really because if I was biased I could say all this stuff that I could say I could say all this untrue stuff that most people believe like most people believe for example that um you know physical attractiveness doesn't matter it, it's it's what in your, it's what's in your heart right like it's like you know there's everybody for somebody da, 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 da. um and you know people will love you for who you are deep inside that kind of thing and it's like you know that's that's not entirely true it's like yeah physical from a research perspective physical attractiveness really does matter right so so i'm willing to say things that are in either direction, if that's what the data show. Um, and if tomorrow it ter- if tomorrow a bunch of data comes out that shows that women dramatically lose their dating prospects after 30, and I really don't think that data will come out because we've got so much on the other end, um, then I'll change my mind. Um, 
that 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 really is my personality i, I don't know i don't know how i could advertise that better but mm-hmm. yeah and also the the podcast that you're referencing armin like those people what was the what was the one podcast that you specifically asked about fresh and um armin. Fresh and Fit is the one in Miami, and then Whatever is the one in Santa Barbara that has like a lot of uh, people on it, and then Rolo is the logical one, He's just by okay. himself usually. Right. So, are they the people who are talking on those podcasts? Are they backing their facts up with evidence or with research or anything? It is not as referenced directly like Mackin does every time he's putting out material. Sometimes they connect with certain referenced items. But it is, there's referenced items and then there is maybe an hour of body count discussion that mm-hmm. sometimes <laughs> does get a little bit, does get a little mm-hmm. bit redundant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, right, they so, know, they, they use very little. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, it's, sh- it's okay. Yeah. So yeah, just the fact that they're not backing their information up, like that's, I mean, on Mac inside, it's like, it goes to show like those people are just making these blanket statements and or stereotyping or just right you're saying like being sexist because if they don't have anything to back their information up then in any sort of research academic research like taking that into consideration like none of it would be ever published you know none of it would ever actually have any substance and credential linked to it because if you don't have evidence then you can't prove anything or even really suggest anything to be true. There is that element to it. Yeah, I believe they do throw in some material that is fact-based, but then it does get into there was some fact and then there is maybe an hour on some topic kind of pushing at it very uh, directly and or harshly. And Whereas with Mackin's material, for example, direct research, sometimes three or four. This is a one-minute TikTok with three or four references. That's some gold right there. And then information that is on either end and i'm sure if there was a switch mackin would switch that is a good quality that we like to see because then it's unbiased we like unbiased material. well uh, yeah i mean i'm gonna i'm i'm a human so i'm so i'm ultimately going to have biases no matter what but the way to avoid that is to stop emotionally attaching yourselves to hypotheses i mean we see this even some of the best scientists in my field you know they'll become emotionally tangle it's very hard not to but they'll become emotionally tangled up with the hypothesis and then it's really hard for them to let it go if the evidence you know if the evidence starts to go against them right um so and that's a difficult that's a difficulty we have with trained scientists who have been working in a research setting for 40 years right so of course I'm probably going to have, you know, the same issues as, um, as, as a, as a TikToker, right? Like that, like there's going to be, there's going to be some, um, bias, but the way to avoid it is to try to emotionally disconnect from hypotheses as much as possible. And just, uh, so, and there's a few ways to do that formally. Um, one way to do that is to pre-register, um, your science, um, obviously pre-registered, I, there are some cases where pre-registration doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, there, I'm, I'm, I'm not an adherent to the idea that's like, oh, you must pre-register everything you do. Um, but there is an advantage there of being like, hey, in advance, here's what the data will show if I'm correct. 
and it will show it on these statistical analyses. Um, that stops you from doing a lot of the normal gerrymandering that we see in science, where it's like after you get the data, you kind of make sense of how it fits your hypothesis and how it always made sense. Yeah, that that that's opening up for a lot of biases. Um, and then the other thing is to not not feel like you have any stake in something being true, right? So one, one problem that we see among scientists is that they publish some studies showing that something is accurate, right? That an idea is accurate. And then later a larger body of evidence with better materials, better methods comes out to show that it's not accurate, right? And then it's oftentimes very difficult for those researchers to let go of what they originally put forward. Um, I can think of two big examples of this, but I won't. Uh, I won't say it. <laughs> Great. It's a mystery and anonymously kept into the, the black box of information. Yeah. One thing you just said connected with something I've talked about once with uh, psychologist Corey Clark in the psychological space and also Eric Angner in the economic space is that um, the prediction item. So if, if someone's going to make predictions about things or describe what's happening, you want to say it beforehand. Yeah, because afterhand, okay, this happened. It's easy to say, okay, I mapped that out. Okay, then what's the next thing that will occur? If you're on the right track, then what what should we be looking for? What's the next thing that we will see? Okay, then we have something to analyze or compare to or discern. Versus if you're talking about the past, you have all the information and answers already. That doesn't That's say exactly much. Right. That's exactly right. I know that another thing is open science. So making your data and analyses and methods all of it just publicly available just all your materials um there you know there's some historically there's been resistance to this idea but it is the future to be like hey this is what we did this is everything you can audit us as hard as you want um that protects everybody it, it hold it holds ourselves accountable from doing something you know even slightly shady um doing things you know in the open um, but it also um, allows us to better assess each other um, in terms of the quality of research. I, I, I yeah, I think that we're going to see. Um, I think we're going to see a lot better science over the uh, the replication crisis has you know been a bit of a nightmare, but um, thankfully it hasn't seemed to have hit evolutionary psychology too hard. A lot of really important stuff has actually held up. Um, I mean, some of the most robust and replicable findings in all of psychology have been some in evolutionary psychology. And I'm not really an evolutionary psychologist, certainly not capital E, capital P, but I, I do, you know, dabble in that in that area. And, and I would say that my research group would identify as like evolutionarily informed psychology. Um, so, so, you know, it's good to see that some of the things that we thought we knew about human mental evolution have turned out to be true but i think that um, the main point is that i think that these new um accountability methods um they're going to make better science and that's that's exciting i'm glad that my career is starting now and not and not in the 90s or the 80s i like the concept of adversarial collaborations where you uh, oh yes yeah, challenge viewpoints too yeah That's but sometimes one. it's funny sometimes that those those can get too adversarial so i actually i know of an adversarial col um, collaboration that ended up um going off the rails and becoming like like a researcher breakup where they were no longer on good terms um so sometimes it really sometimes it really is sometimes it really is adversarial but yeah so so for anyone listening who doesn't understand that concept it's that's when i think that hypothesis so one example of this would be um, 
like a good debate in evolutionary psychology is um, the kind of good genes or ovulatory shift um, or dual mating strategy hypotheses um, for female infidelity. And, you know, there are different kind of iterations of these. They don't all necessarily go in one basket. Um, and then the mate switching hypothesis. And so an adversarial collaboration would be if you got the main advocates of the good gene of the you know mate switching hypothesis and the main advocates of the um, good genes hypothesis, and you were like, okay, design an experiment together um, to test your ideas against each other. Um, that type of result results from adversarial collaborations. And that, and that example has not happened. I'm just saying that that would be a good example of what could happen where it's like, there's been a debate. And so you get the people on both sides of the debate to work together and agree in advance. Like this is a well-designed experiment that we'll agree with the results of, um, and then we can move on. Um, so yeah, the yeah, adversarial collaboration is super cool. Yeah. Now continuing off of the show concept, those are some less known shows, more known to YouTube, but let's say in more public domain, there are shows like Love is Blind and or The Bachelor, which are viewed by a many and uh, may have an impact on the populace. So on this one, I'll start with Rebecca. When you think about those shows, does it come to mind? Do they represent what can be? Do they represent something that's off? Do you think they mess up the collective view of what people can see for relationships? What comes to mind when you think of the default of mm -hmm. programs like Love is Blind or The Bachelor? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll start with a positive about the shows. I think when I've even watched them, I like the dialogue between the different people. I like seeing the kind of questions they ask and hearing about how people describe themselves when they are getting to know somebody else. I think that's really interesting because you get to see so many different people and so many personalities and the way that different people connect is cool. But I think that those situations where you're putting people on a show and you're telling them to date and you're doing all these fun activities and you're kind of in this like other world it can not it doesn't always set you up for actual reality of life basically i really like that you get to see a lot of different people's personalities and how they connect and all the different kinds of questions they ask when getting to know somebody i think those are really insightful and interesting but i sometimes don't Think that those shows really prepare people for the reality of their relationship that they're forming in this show and sometimes you see after the show these couples break up but sometimes they stay together valid point Mackin, do you think about these shows and their impact what are your thoughts on those I don't. Um, the only similar show that I've watched, um, my girlfriend's Indian, and so I, I've watched some Indian matchmaking, um, and that's been that's been great. I've learned a little bit about Indian culture, um, but also gotten to see a lot of human mating behavior um, in an interesting cultural context. Um, I love it. Yeah, I, I think it's a great show. I'm not sure about. Um, I think that one issue um, with. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this woman called Simanti, um, and she is matching up Indian couples. Well, I'll just my my only take on it is that uh, is that she would make better matches if she paid more attention to looks. Um, she seems to match people up basically exclusively based on personalities, and then get upset with them when uh, when they don't like each other. Um, and it's like, yeah, you got to put good looking people with good looking people, Sima. Um, they're they're not going to be they're not going to be satisfied, you know. The last item I want to cover here is the broad natured item, the dating landscape of sorts. I once asked Ruben from Social Animal about the dating landscape and he 
had responded that for him, it's not about the broader dating landscape, but just person to person interactions that you have, uh, which is something there. There's the broad and there's the more specific. If I asked you, Mackin, what do you think about the dating landscape right now? Let's say in the United States, what's it look like? Are there any themes that come to mind for how someone should go into it or what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, the last time the last time I was dating in the United States, I was in high school. So I I, I don't think uh, I don't think I'm a good person to ask. Um, and that that was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't have a good perspective of it. And then also, different people's experience dating is going to be, I guess, from a because even the data it doesn't seem to reflect what a lot of people are saying in some cases and some, and there's, you know, contradictory findings. Um, it might be easier to just talk about factors affecting the mating market in general. Um, income inequality seems to intensify the mating market. That's a relatively well-supported finding. If some people are millionaires and some people are broke, mating competition gets more intense on both sides, right? Um, the operational sex ratio or the adult sex ratio, both seem to affect the mating market. If, you know, there's more women than men, then men have more freedom to choose, right? Because not every woman's going to get a man um, and vice versa. And we see that happen at the level of the city. So for example, um, in Manhattan, there are more women than men. And so men tend to have higher standards than women in New York. And they also seem to... Uh, I mean, it seems to correlate with short-term mating because men generally have a higher desire for short-term mating relative to women. That's not to say that they don't want long-term mating. It's just that they're more interested in that. And if they have more bargaining power, then the operational sex ratio can affect that. Um, a lot has been said about dating apps, right? Dating apps, dating apps, dating apps. They're doing this, they're doing that. And then it's like, well, where is the data showing that there has been a radical shift in how mating happens since the advent of dating apps, if that's true. Because when you look at it, it looks, I mean, I, there, I, there hasn't, I, I, I'm not aware of any like really good research on this. So it's possible that I'm, and, and this really isn't my area. So it's possible that I'm, that I'm missing something profound, but it doesn't seem that dating apps have radically altered the landscape other than making it so that most people are meeting or, or not most people, but a, a substantial minority of people are meeting on the apps, right? Um, I mean, most people, aren't actively on dating apps. So it's it's kind of hard to make an argument that they've changed everything. And then most people don't meet through dating apps. Um, but that's something that gets talked about a lot. The dating situation in America, um, people seem to have a perception that it's harder now than ever, and it very well might be. Um, but I think, I, I think that it might just have always been hard and uh, you know, every generation is going to, I think that one kind of counter counter hypothesis is that maybe it's always been hard. And um, every new young generation has like the perception that there must have been a time when this was easy. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that mating has ever been easy. It's it's always been kind of the, the hardest competition out there. Um, so. There's that. Does some of what Mackin has described about the dating landscape resonate with you, Rebecca? What are your thoughts on, is there any words we can use to describe how dating is right now that comes to mind or examples from people you know? I think there are always ways to 
meet people and connect and for people to date and how we how we were saying in the beginning of the conversation where people are more geared towards how people look and that's where people date I think there are still opportunities to find someone who is similar to you if if that is the case of who you're going to end up dating there's all sorts of places you can meet people you can meet people through different activities like joining groups in your community you can meet people at church you can meet people through other friends. I think there's still a lot of opportunity out there. It's not just dating apps. And um, even though maybe you see these these apps being publicized a lot, there there's always a lot of opportunity still. And um, I don't think people should feel like they don't have hope, so. Yeah, I agree with that. The dating apps do get a lot of publicity because they're easy to point to and it's harder to point to some public place where people meet or those things because they're behind the scenes whereas these ones have algorithms and numbers behind them which is valid this is wonderful now we have covered a wide variety of topics in this space and i will toss this one to each of you last words in this category that come to mind uh, and then i will have some too but mackin will be your last words that come to mind in the dating category that we were talking about um nothing specific i guess i guess i would just throw out there that um a lot of people will point to environmental and market phenomena to explain personal struggles uh plenty of people aren't actually i mean the people talk about kind of the mating crisis and you know there might there might well be one certainly there seems to be a perception that there is one but but one kind of skeptical view is that it might just be that the people who are having a hard time are making the most noise um most of my friends are in relationships right it seems pretty like in my social circle i i, I don't i don't see a crisis um it's pretty chill you know people are coupling up spending years together and uh and it seems pretty, pretty cool. And uh, everyone seems pretty happy. So, but if you, and that, that, so that's my view is that like, if you're someone who's, and I'm not, I'm not being unsympathetic here. It genuinely does. It genuinely is difficult. But if you're someone who's, you know, profoundly undesirable on the mating market, you might have this perception of like, oh, it's society's fault. Right. But the, truth is like it's like modern society has rejected me but it's also possible and this is more depressing but it's also possible that that would have also been true 50 years ago it also would have been true 100 years ago it would have been true 150 years ago i mean in every generation a substantial portion of people specifically males do not reproduce right they don't reproduce so and, you know, a substantial portion of people struggle to find romantic partners. I would actually say that that's the norm for men. I would say that most men struggle on the mating market, and that's usually been true. So the idea that, like, there was some time when everybody, you know, just everything was easy and everybody got a wife without any issue. It's like, eh, all right, what, what, what time and place in history, bro? Because um, I think it's always been kind of difficult, and it's, it's probably more likely that... Uh, it's more likely to be a 
I think that for most people, it's, it's better to think that it's more likely to be a personal problem than a societal problem. And even if that's incorrect, even if it's a 100% societal problem, that mentality won't get you anywhere because it's harder to change society than yourself. Um, so again, tons of sympathy for people who are, you know, involuntarily celibate or involuntarily single. Um, that's genuinely a tough situation, but it also, it also doesn't necessarily mean that anything new is happening. I think that there's a long history of, you know, insultum and, um, involuntary singleness. Rebecca, last thoughts on this space and material we've covered. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the one thing that came up to my mind about history was I was thinking about arranged marriages and I was like, maybe I wonder what that looked like back in time. Did most people get arranged marriages through their families or was that just like the top of the top, like wealthy families that that happened with? I'm not sure. But that was the only other factor that was coming into my mind of what history looked like when it came to dating or marriages. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a historian. I do, I do have one degree in history and I've actually spoken to, I've spoken about this topic about arranged marriages with one of the leading experts, um, on romantic love. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of people's perception of arranged marriages is that they conflate them with forced marriage. Um, but that's, mm -hmm. that's typically not the case, right? It's like, and you know, in, um, there are people in my extended social circle who um, who have arranged or semi-arranged marriages. It like it still happens today. Like there, it's there are still there are still you know arrangements happening um, in you know parts parts of the East, um, and oftentimes it's it's actually there's a lot of choice involved, right? Like it's like you're there's and it's. The painful truth is that if you're, you know, choosing um, someone for your kid, you're going to, I mean, we like we see studies, for example, that um, that the that your daughter's partners or your son's partners looks um, actually matter to you as well. Right. Like so like parents choosing for their kids, they often choose on the same they choose on the same harsh criteria, right? Where it's like, I want to, I want to get my daughter, someone good looking, wealthy, high status, that kind of thing. Um, and then also there's the, the element of like, it's actually, it's actually very unusual for even in these cultures with arranged marriage to see forced marriage where it's like, you have to marry this person. Um, generally it's like, Hey, why don't you guys meet? And there's a process of like, is this going to work? Um, and it might be a lot quicker than the Western dating process in terms of decision-making time. And there might be a lot less leverage from the kid's point of view. Um, but you know, it's, um, I think that there is this kind of myth among incels and people of that ilk that like, Oh, if arranged marriages were a thing, we'd all be safe. No, probably not. Mm -hmm. bigger picture insight there interesting arranged marriages have been popular for a long time in certain areas i would say my last thoughts on the matter we've covered a good chunk of what is happening right now the data behind it uh how people are feeling it's nice to have empathy for those who are not doing well which is a good chunk like yeah like 40 percent of men only have reproduced over time and then what people say versus what they actually go for that's always a discrepancy but i think we all have an idea of what is the base of people's decisions 
very glad to have had both of you on for this discussion with the back and forth of sorts. I would like to first thank you, Macken, for joining in from Australia, and then Rebecca for joining in. And the, the complimentary nature of our discussion is wonderful. Glad for both of you today. The Armin Show is a culmination of so many of my discussions with thoughtful individuals, knowledgeable individuals, creative individuals, people who have something to say in a category that they have put effort into maybe for years, maybe for decades. A lot of experience comes through. I like finding the links between people and topics of discussion in the categories that you have come to recognize. We're glad to continue the show, to branch out, to expand, to have more links between individuals, to have bigger groupings of individuals together in different formats so that the show becomes more of a show. And as we continue to do this, we're always glad for your support along the way. The Army Show is something that has developed from all my past efforts, blogging, making videos, audios, and has reached to this point where there are now hundreds of episodes with people or just with myself, bringing knowledge, sometimes entertainment, information, something that can help us progress forward in the categories that I tend to cover. Hope you enjoy it and onward we go. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please comment any takeaways you had and we'll see you on the Armin Show next time.